Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 122, and we will take a closer look at the love life of a Boer spy, whose tale is laced with an unusual irony that involves a regiment called the Bitbottisrond Rifles. The nature of this war had shifted again by January 1902, with the British system of blockhouses and drives beginning to create a problem for the Boers, pushing the small number of commandos left into the areas of the country that could hardly be called strategic. The guerrilla tactic has morphed again from hit and run to a lot more running and far less hitting. The policy of no longer forcing women and children into concentration camps had also begun to pose a small problem for the Boers in a way. While the Boers were used to tough conditions with drought and poor crops returns and lean years, the increasingly volatile regions on the frontiers meant they were isolated and in danger from other forces. Near Swaziland, the Kiswati chiefs had made it clear that they felt the need to launch revenge attacks on the nearby Boer homesteads, so too in the northwestern Transvaal, in the northern Transvaal, and along the border with Zululand. The Basutu had not actively entered the Free State, but there were real fears by the Boers that vast tracts of empty farmland would entice their traditional foe, who had made it clear that their interests lay with the British. In Pretoria, sitting at her desk was Boer spy Johanna van Barmelo. We have heard many stories from her as she kept three diaries, a personal, a public and a secret spying diary. The historian Jackie Grobler published these in one volume in 2007. It's a great read because she wrote as a young woman and her point of view was mixed. She also wrote in English while despising the English. In January 1902, Jana has applied for a permit to travel between Pretoria and Johannesburg. Small parties of Boers have repeatedly attacked the railway line between these two cities, which are only 43 miles or 62 kilometers apart. In 1902, that was a whole day by slow-moving train. Now the Gau train travels the route in 35 minutes. By January 10th, Johanna was planning this trip. Much to be done. I am now busy preparing for a little trip to Johannesburg, but oh dear, the difficulty one has to get permits. The English have never been so strict before. Little known to Johanna and her mother, the British were becoming more suspicious about their activities and had begun to suspect that both could be spying. This was a very dangerous time for the Van Barmelo woman. Johanna, blissfully unaware, continues. She went to the local military commander, Major Hoskins, who sent her onwards to a commission of police. He, in turn, asked her where her letter of recommendation was from the Pretoria suburb ward officer in charge. I asked in bewilderment who and what that might be, and was sent to Ward B far away from any other office. The officer there demanded a physical address where Johanna was to be staying in Johannesburg. It was a trip to visit Pauline, who was a friend and heavily pregnant. It took five more days of bureaucracy, letters and arguments before Johanna was handed her permit. Before heading off, she had one important local task to perform. I went to the burger camp department to get permission to take some groceries and clothing to Irene, but was refused. Irene was the local concentration camp where Johanna had worked for a month as a nurse. As with other camps, many had died there, many others were close to starving. They went over my list of things and scratched out everything except salmon and vinegar. The other things, milk, jam, vegetables, soap, candles, oatmeal, etc. 
We refused because the department official told me the camp inmates get more of these items than they can use. More than they can use? Oh God, my heart nearly broke when I heard those lying, pitiless words and realized my utter helplessness. Johanna knew that the items were necessities that were in short supply in Irene concentration camp. I felt inclined to lay my head on that man's desk and sob my heart out in my misery, she wrote in her public diary. Instead, she made a mental note of the new harsh treatment for interns of the camp. Johanna's permit to travel to Johannesburg cleared her to leave on the 14th of January 1902. However, before she could leave on the morning of the 12th, the war returned to Pretoria. She was awoken by sounds of firing in the direction of Skinner's Court to the east of the city. The Italian gardeners said the fight began at about four o'clock in the morning, but we heard it just before breakfast, and it was at its very worst between eleven and twelve. I have never heard anything like that. The rattle of the Maxim machine guns could be heard in the clear summer air, along with the automatic cannons, the pom-poms, which continued for hours. Suddenly, at midday, the firing ceased. Word was passed around that the Boers had shot up a whole Red Cross train at Skinner's Court Station because they found it was carrying cannon, arms, ammunition and troops. Of course we know the English are constantly doing that sort of thing and we are always very glad to hear the Boers have punished them, writes Johanna. But of course she was wrong. It was a normal firefight between the British and the Boers. There was no Red Cross train with ammunition. As we all know, the first thing that suffers in war is the truth. It also shows just how bitterly opposed to the British many Afrikaners remained. But this was certainly not all. Many others had turned and begun to fight for the British, or at least help run their bureaucracy. Johanna and the other hardliners hated these men and women viscerally, as we've heard already. She was to confront a very personal example of this shortly. Yet it began to dawn on the more pragmatic that the English were not going away. Small successes on the distant felt were now merely a moment of glee, not a harbinger of victory. It was like sticking a pin into the lion and enjoying its angry growl, rather than thrusting a stabbing spear into its heart. The numbers of Boer turncoats and surrenders accelerated around this time. This would become a flood through February. Johanna boarded the train on January 14th. More than 12 hours later, she was asleep in her friend's home at Amar Villa No. 2 in Johannesburg. On the morning of the 15th, she awoke and noted that the air was much clearer than in Pretoria. These two cities are now virtually enjoined by a metropolitan sprawl, but at the time were far apart in more ways than merely distance. Johannesburg is 1,400 feet higher than Pretoria on the plateau of South Africa called the Haarfeld. Whereas Pretoria was the romantic heart of the Transvaal Boers, Johannesburg was its seedy Sodom and Gomorrah underbelly where eight landers or immigrants from around the world had arrived with their evil ways. Prostitution and gambling had become the pastime of many, and like other gold-rush towns and cities of the 19th century, it had grown far faster than its infrastructure could bear. But Pauline and her husband, who remains unnamed, seemed inured by the ongoing war. They are living in a house about as big as a matchbox, but spotlessly clean and so bright and cheerful, writes Johanna. Next month, the small family will be enriched by a brand new little inmate, and then I do believe there will be nothing more on earth that my friend can desire. A baby due any day, something normal for Johanna to consider in the midst of all this abnormality. 
Along the line yesterday, I saw many ruined homesteads and deserted farms and a few blockhouses at the different stations. Everywhere there were signs of war, Red Cross trains, field hospitals, troops, and two or three trains laden with women and children. And then Johanna's former fiancé, Karl de Kok, decided to pay a visit to number two Amar Billa. She hated Karl, for he had thrown in his lot with the British. And furthermore, she had now become engaged to her real love, who was in exile in the Netherlands. Karl seemed unhappy by the news. I was much agitated by Karl's unexpected visit, but he was very nice and congratulated me on my engagement and asked if we could be friends now, as if there had been no past, she fumed in her diary. I am afraid we can never be friends, but I am only too glad to forget the past. So many people in South Africa had begun to shift their attitudes from an eternal conflict to something akin to live and let live. The pragmatic view of those who knew they would be living cheek by jowl in the future and had the emotional courage and intellect to know that scratching the terrible surface of each other's pain forever would lead to a never-ending internecine violence. Then Karl made a mistake of boasting to Johanna that he was simply coining money. Coining it! Quite a silly thing to say to someone whose entire family has been riven and shattered by war. It's also not the best thing for a young man to say to a former girlfriend whose one brother is suffering in prisoner of war camps in Ceylon and the other is still fighting. Talk about callow youth. Unhappy man, she writes venomously. He is a rand rifleman, a traitor to the land and people and is simply coining money while he ought to be in the field where my own dear brother is. Still, she agreed to let him take her riding later that day and wrote in her diary, I pity him with his worldly successes, with a pity that is no little contempt in it, but because of the past I ignore these things when we are together and absolutely refuse to discuss them with him. I want to forget all that now. By January 22nd, Johanna had arrived back home in Pretoria after receiving shocking news while at Pauline's house. The British, you see, had arrived to search Harmony in Pretoria, carrying a warrant and presented this to her mother. On Sunday morning, when she was still asleep, Jim knocked at her window and said the police wanted to see her. Jim was their black worker, who had remained with the two women throughout the war. She dressed in a hurry, and on going out found an officer who informed her that he had been ordered by the Commissioner of Police to search her house. Armed men were standing around outside the home, some at the front door and others at the back, under the mulberry tree near the kitchen. The officer was very courteous, she notes, and just glanced through all the rooms. I looked under the beds, behind the screens, opened the wardrobes. When the house had been thoroughly examined, they went to the outside rooms, but found nothing, of course. They were looking for men, if you please, she writes disgustedly. Now there is only one kind of man that one looks for under beds nowadays, and it is a perfect mystery to me how the English got such ideas in their heads. The only kind of man hiding inside a married woman's home nowadays, as she said, was not a lover, but a spy. Of course the English didn't just get an idea in their heads, they had been aware that spies were constantly reporting their movements and logistics to poor fighters nearby, and someone had tipped them off. The Van Barmelo woman were spies, so this was a close call, 
as their true role had still not been discovered. But Johanna, after laughing off the visit, writes in her secret diary that, I am more than sorry at having missed the excitement. My stay in Johannesburg was clouded by two stormy interviews with Carl, poor fellow. He wants me to take him back again. Evidently, the sight of me and the thought of my engagement was too much for him. Suddenly, his boasting about coining it made sense. He was doing the young male fluffy feather dance around his possible mate, crooning and showing off his lovely new horses, just like our modern youngsters buying BMWs, tricking them out, then stuffing beautiful young things into the passenger seat. Johanna fobbed him off as a coward, a traitor, and dishonorable idiot, contemptible in his crassness, a sellout who holds material possessions in higher esteem than his own blood and dignity and honor. Whatever Carl thought of himself, he was really a glorified security guard. He was part of a unit called the Rand Rifle Corps, which was raised towards the end of 1900. It was a small unit, a few hundred strong, and was generally employed on the defences of Johannesburg and the posts in the surrounding district. Although they saw some skirmishing and attacks on posts, they were not in any big engagement and had few opportunities of gaining distinction. The Corps remained on service till the end of the war and only received one mention, which was to follow in March 1902. A certain private P.N. Maskell was promoted to corporal by Lord Kitchener for a distinguished conduct in defence of post at Brackpan, February, when five men repulsed 49 Boers. <laughs> Somewhat amazing in these dispatches, the five fought off exactly 49 men. Surely dozens, or perhaps as many as 50, but no, someone, and somehow they managed to repulse exactly 49. But the Rand Rifles deserve a special mention because, like with many things about the Anglo-Boer War, their importance resonates to this day. After the Boer War, the Rand Rifles were absorbed with members of the Railway Pioneer Regiment into the Witwatersrand Rifles in 1903. This new regiment was to play a major role in South Africa's military history over the next century, and still does. It saw action during the Bambata Rebellion of 1906, when it deployed a contingent to Zululand. In 1907, the regiment was strengthened when it absorbed the Transvaal Light Infantry Regiment and was mobilized again when World War I broke out. The first action that it took part in was the South African invasion of German Southwest Africa, now Namibia. After the successful conclusion of this campaign, virtually all members volunteered for overseas service. Many of the volunteers were consequently assigned to the 3rd South African Infantry Battalion. Unfortunately for these men, they ended up at the terrible Battle of Delville Wood during the Somme Offensive, where 3,433 men went in and only 750 came out. Other members of the regiment served in the Bitwarsund Rifles Company of the 7th Infantry, which then served in German East Africa. In the interwar years, the regiment deployed during the 1922 Rand Revolt when rebellious South African Communist Party white miners tried to overthrow the government of General Jan Smuts. Up to 300 were killed. In the early 1930s, the regiment affiliated with the Scottish Rifles of the British Army, and the Scottish link continues to this day. As a consequence, the Bidipartisrand Rifles adopted the uniform in many of the traditions of this Scottish Lowland Regiment. At the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the regiment was expanded to two battalions and was deployed to Egypt in 1943. During its service in North Africa, 
the Witwatersrand Rifles was amalgamated with Regiment de la Rey, which is another irony of our history. Chris de la Rey, of course, was a bitter ender who hated the British, and in fact rebelled against them in 1914. Now this unit was fighting for the British in North Africa. They'd been combined with the Regiment de la Rey. That was only 30 years later. This combined regiment, nicknamed the Royal Burra, saw extensive action in Italy as part of the South African 6th Armoured Division, particularly at Monte Caprara and Monte Stanco. Then from 1970 until the first all-race democratic elections in 1994, the regiment saw action in the South African border war in Namibia and Angola, as well as on the South African Botswana border and in South African townships. The latter was a source of much discontent in the regiment. When conscription ended in 1993, the regiment began an active recruitment drive to maintain reserve troop strength. During South Africa's second democratic election in 1999, the regiment deployed 180 volunteers in support of the South African Police Service. So, in the 21st century, the Vitvardesrand Rifles Regiment continues to attract volunteers for regular part-time training and maintains its Scottish links. Members of the regiment continue to maintain their traditional Scottish lowland uniforms and traditions and uphold very high standards of discipline and effective military training. The regiment also has an active pipe band as well as one of the top shooting teams in South Africa and is supported by regimental council and association. Very interesting if you consider its long history is over the past few years in South Africa this regiment has provided troops for internal operations in support of the South African Police Service and on the border as part of Operation Corona, as well as for United Nations peacekeeping operations in the DRC and the Sudan. By August 2019, 52 units of the Reserve Force had their names changed to reflect the diversity of current SANDF thinking, and this unit, and this is the final irony, was changed to the Bambata Rifles, which of course makes sense as the regiment fought against Chief Bambata all the way back in 1906. The regiment holds the freedom of the cities of Johannesburg and Germiston, as well as the town of Barberton in Mpumalanga. A long road taken by this regiment, much despised by Johanna van Barmeler, as she fobbed off one of its earliest Afrikaner members and her ex-fiancé. So with this momentous and symbolic connection explained, it's time to end this week's podcast. Please rate us on iTunes if you have time or inclination and send me a message on my Twitter account at Des Latham or through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar my sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari marie. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom.